All right, students, let's finish Oedipus the King, Lecture 5, Introduction to Sophocles, Athenian Tragedy, and Oedipus the King, Lines, 983-1531-92108. So let's recall where we were. Oedipus remains afraid of his mother Merope. We had just found out yesterday from a messenger from Corinth that uh, the father of Oedipus, or the person he thinks was his father, um, Polybus, has just died, which was for uh, Oedipus bad news because, of course, his father had died, but also very good news because that meant that the prophecy of Apollo was incorrect, that he would someday kill his father. So now the second part of the prophecy, he still slightly fears, even though he has been denigrating Apollo in the prophecies of the gods. Recall that he said that they've, they're all nonsense, seen as uh, they've come to nothing. And so, but, however, he still has some small bit of fear that he could somehow lay with Merope, uh, uh, somehow or some way. Uh, who knows how these gods work in any case. The messenger who has come to give us this information then plays with our emotions. Uh, in the first case, he's calling Oedipus son, and Oedipus continues to call him old man in a sort of denigrating, derogatory fashion, the same way that I, I recently uh, referred to somebody I thought in neutral terms by saying, describing somebody that I'd seen as a middle-aged person, and I was told that that was a mean thing to do, and I said, how's that mean? I would have thought calling them old would have been a mean thing to do. In any case, uh, to call someone old does have some sense of uh, derogatoriness, that's why we often call someone our elder, not, not just old. In any case, uh, Oedipus keeps calling this person old man, not exactly a, a title of uh, a respect. And so, <clears throat> this messenger then says to Oedipus, Oh, why are you so afraid that, of laying with your mother uh, Merope? That, that is a baseless fear, because you, Oedipus, were no son of Polybus at all. You were no son of Merope at all. Shocking. What? Yet, his parents were not actually his parents. Now, this, uh, there's really a lot to think through once you realize that, because if those weren't actually his parents, who was he running away from? Who was he running towards? Was he running away from his parents and the prophecy, or was he running <coughs> towards the prophecy? <laughs> and so, Oedipus is in disbelief, in disbelief and does not immediately realize the impact of this information, of course, and how this new information translates to him being back on the hook for killing his father and laying with his mother, and also being back on the hook for hubristically, arrogantly denigrating the prophecies of Apollo. He had said, since they come to nothing, they're obviously worth nothing, and yet have they come to nothing? Or has Oedipus simply been acting or thinking based on false information? In any case, this is not good news at all from him. Any relief from finding his father dead he is now gone. And he's simply left now with consternation and, of course, some sadness at uh, his, uh, the death of his, we will soon find out, adopted father. The prophecy unfulfilled is now gone. Hmm. That means that the prophecy may have been fulfilled. So let's keep moving. So this messenger... Oedipus then questions the messenger. The messenger first brought Oedipus to, okay, so we find out a little bit about this messenger. So this messenger is a herdsman of Corinth, and he used to live right next to a herdsman from Thebes. Small spoiler alert, the messenger from Thebes is the same person who accompanied Laius with his four men who were killed, who then, upon re-entering Thebes, asked to be sent out to the farm. This messenger is also the same messenger who was, tasked, uh, who was given the task to 
bind the ankles of Oedipus, and to kill him. Uh, third spoiler, this is the messenger. Or, uh, that Theban messenger is the one who gave to this Corinthian messenger, who is also a farmer and a herdsman, uh, Oedipus. And this herdsman, who was given Oedipus from the Theban, this Corinthian herdsman who was given the who was given Oedipus from the um, Theban herdsman is the one who first gave Oedipus to uh, Polybus and Merope, which is why he knows that Oedipus in front of him is no son of uh, Polybus at all. And so this messenger first brought Oedipus to Polybus from Lyas. Why did Polybus, King Polybus, accept this vagrant uh, child? Because he himself was childless and needed a child. And as I told you, that's a common motif. In mythology, that uh, like say a barren couple, they can't have a child, and they are and they are brought sort of adopted child. Uh, same story as say Moses. There's some similarities with Heracles, and uh, similarities here as well, uh, and, and several others that I I can't just call to mind. In any case, Oedipus addresses him with edge. You were a shepherd, a hireling vagrant. He continues to be sort of insulting towards this man, probably because he feels some tension because this man has information. It is going to ruin his day and uh, uh, potentially ruin his life. Um, and the messenger responds in kind, uh, also uh, showing some tension. Yes, but at least at that time, the man that saved your life, son. So he says, okay, uh, I might have been a low-ranking individual, but in some ways, uh, you owe everything to me because I saved your life. And perhaps perhaps that's actually not worth that much to Oedipus in, well, at least the next five minutes of lecture. So we'll see. Why is there this tension between the two? Uh, sort of an allegorical way to look at this is, is this like tension between Oedipus and his own conscience? Or is this like tension that exists, again, within Oedipus himself? He wants to know what this messenger has to say, but he doesn't... Uh, uh, he wants to know because he wants to know the truth, but he does not want the truth to be what it is. And um, so uh, he is at odds with himself, and he is at odds with those around him because he is at odds with himself. Have you ever been sort of angry and you displaced on somebody? You acted angrily against them even though they're not the one who made you angry? It's the same sort of idea right there. That's, that's another psychological term. It's called displacement. It's a, uh, you, you pull your sister's hair, she pulls the cat's hair, the cat goes eat and eats a gerbil. Uh, or something like that. In any case, this messenger then shows that he really does know what he's talking about. He mentions Oedipus's scars on his ankles, and again, another physical disfiguration that indicates the identity of a person. We saw that last time with Odysseus with a scar above his knee. I mentioned also a modern reference to this, which is, of course, Dumbledore, Albus Dumbledore from the first Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone for the English, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for the Americans, and uh, um, he apparently has a scar above his knee that is an entire map of the London Underground. Uh, it's a rail system. In any case, flashback. Remember what Jocasta said about how she and Laius bound the ankles of the child that they intended to kill. And so this Oedipus, who is king of Thebes, has scars on his ankles. And the child that Laius and Jocasta wanted to kill, precisely because there was a prophecy that it would someday lay with its mother and kill its father, also had pierced ankles. Pierced ankles that, if that child were to have survived, probably would have left a what on its ankles? A scar. Hmm. Horror begins to well up in Oedipus, and he demands to know who first gave him to this Corinthian messenger. It was another shepherd. Well, which shepherd? And the chorus responds, the same peasant that Jocasta sent for. Can you feel the sense of pace 
increasing in this play, in this tragedy, as we get closer and closer to the end, it's like a snowball getting closer and closer to the bottom of a hill, it's gaining speed, gaining momentum, and we're, we're pushing towards, inertia is now carrying us towards the end, but isn't that the man that she also sent to kill her son, that same shepherd who gave this baby, who was Oedipus, to this other shepherd, it's becoming clearer and clearer what the situation is, and yet still we must investigate. Here's a nice picture of Oedipus in the Sphinx. Sphinx looks kind of unhappy. Oedipus looks sort of disgusted with her. He's got a nice little knife. In any case, let's go back over the major revelations so far. Let's just halt the action for a moment and halt the inertia. Laius was killed on the spot that Oedipus killed a man. Okay, that's called circumstantial evidence in uh, courtroom dramas and in law these days. That means that uh, you were at the place where something happened. It doesn't necessarily link you in terms of cause with what happened, but it does link you in terms of time and figure, which means that you potentially did make something happen on a crime scene if you happened to be there during the circumstance. Uh, though it does not uh, insist that you are the one who did it. But, you know, uh, uh, it, is, uh, it is not generally considered the strongest evidence, but it is some evidence against you. So don't be in places where crimes happen, uh, because you can be linked to crimes because of that. The original servant, who was a herdsman, who we now know was sent to kill Oedipus, is sent uh, for to confirm whether robbers, remember we're still thinking about that, or a robber killed Laius. If it was a robber, it was probably Oedipus. If there were many robbers, it couldn't have been Oedipus because it's not multiple people. Uh, the latter, a robber rather than robber, singular rather than plural, would incriminate Oedipus. Then, now we know, Polybus is dead, very sad. Which uh, we then thought meant that the curse could not come true. We all said, oh, Lazarus, Apollo, you foolish, uh, foolish god with your foolish prophecies, totally made of wind. But then we realized that Polybus is not actually Oedipus' father. So, if the servant comes back, uh, the Theban servant, the Theban herdsman, comes back and says that Laius was killed by one man, Oedipus will have lived out the curse that he tried to avoid by leaving Corinth and going to Thebes in the first place. Hyperventilating a little bit. Let's see what happens. Oedipus then shows his thickness. Again, we're delaying the action just a little bit because we all want to know. What we already know, right? We already know what's happened. And we believe in uh, the, the, uh, the ability of the gods within these, uh, the, the confines of drama and tragedy. And yet, Jocasta first realizes the truth. She says, I beg you, do not hunt this out. I beg you, if you have any care for your own life, what I am suffering is enough. 1062, 1062. Uh, Oedipus assumes, and I think this is just so... So interesting. This is why I call this thick. Uh, Oedipus assumes that Jocasta thinks he could be born from a slave. And he, he, uh, he and Oedipus, or he and Jocasta, argue. And she is arguing him away from a humiliating truth, and yet he is raging towards it. Uh, he, he, <coughs> excuse me, she takes her final exit. So, uh, um, what, what he seems to believe here is that uh, <laughs> she is upset at him because of the fact that he could potentially be lowborn rather than highborn, and she's sort of disgusted at the fact that her consort, with whom she's had four children, two boys, two girls, is this lowborn commoner. And so he's like, oh, you know, that's sort of a bad thing, but uh, not the worst thing in the world, but that is not uh, uh, actually what she has realized. She has realized that she has laying with her son, and that the prophecy that she tried to escape by attempting to have that son killed and not doing her dirty work herself has come true. So... He thinks that she thinks him the son of a slave. He claims that he is the child of fortune. Indeed, that is true. He is 
Uh, I would not call him fortunate, but certainly he is subject to fortune. He is subject to uh, uh, prophecy, too. The Chorus then speculates about the mother of Oedipus. Was it some nymph with the god Pan? Pan is, of course, a nature spirit who is the son, uh, sometimes we say, of Hermes. And, uh, or some bride of Loxius. And Loxius is a prophetic name of Apollo. That's just one of his many, many, many names. As you know, Apollo has many names, has many aspects. Uh, this all seems to be, again, sort of wishful thinking. Who could be his parents? A very interesting sort of question. And yet, uh, the, the answer will not be what he wants. The old, an old man enters. This is the Theban herdsman, the servant, the messenger that we have been waiting for, who was with the train of Lias, and who was the neighbor to the Corinthian herdsman. And first he says, I, I, I do not remember this messenger from Corinth. I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen him. And he's sort of nervous about it. And so we don't really believe him. And, and uh, the messenger then says, oh, well, I, I kept a flock near this man's for two or three years. We were neighbors. We, uh, we actually knew each other pretty well. Uh, and he says, didn't you give me a child? Theban messenger, I am, of course, the Corinthian messenger, who was your uh, neighbor for several years. And the herdsman, the Theban herdsman, begs not to tell Oedipus the truth. He says, I wish I died the day that I did. Because remember, his task was to kill uh, Oedipus so that he didn't live out this terrible fate. And yet, now he sees in front of him this uh, scarred, ankled king who obviously has lived out this terrible fate, and he has played some part in it because he did not do his job, which was, you know, of course, infanticide. He was supposed to kill an infant. Most people don't try and do that in mythology. But uh, uh, that was his job. He did not do his job, and now terrible things have happened. All right. The baby was a child of Elias. My goodness, what a revelation. That child who must be Oedipus now was a child of Elias. Now we just have to understand whether that... Uh, Multiple robbers or one robber were the ones who killed Lias because if it was one robber and the person in front of him is a child, or, or and the child he had was a child of Lias, and that child happens to be Oedipus now grown up, then Oedipus was the one who killed that man Lias and also has blame with his mother. In any case, he said, Slaver born in wedlock, ask your wife Jocasta. She is the one she gave you away. I, I, what? Huh? <laughs> your wife Jocasta is the one that gave you away as a baby. But the baby who was given away was a child of Lias. A child of Lias and who? A child of Lias and Jocasta. Jocasta was the mother of the baby who was Oedipus. Jocasta was the mother of her husband, Oedipus. And what was the reason that this Jocasta gave this baby away? Well, there was an oracle that it would kill its parents. Um, that's what he knows anyway. Uh, we know that it would kill one parent and lay with another, but we will soon see what the outcome of that was. The her herdsman, however, he pitied the baby. Terrible fate or not, baby. Baby looks up to you, it's like, and you're like, oh, you're a cute little baby. I'll give you away. Who could you kill? It's like, as a baby, no one, but as an Oedipus, his dad. Uh, <laughs> Woo! Beautiful image here. I like that he has a laurel wreath, too. Laurel wreath is what you give to victors. He's definitely not one of those in this image. Oedipus then requests never again to see the light of day. He goes immediately. This is the recognition. This is the turn. All at once. His fate, or excuse me, his fortune totally changes from pretty good, excellent, you know, king uh, with lots of children. A lot of people love him, call him a hero. He calls them, uh, he calls them himself his children, uh, his, um, his subjects. And uh, in this moment, boom, now he will no longer be king. He is now uh, ultimate loser. He is 
uh, sort of uh, uh, a, a symbol of corruption and a cause of corruption and plague in his own people. He has uh, caused the degeneration of his own people. He is, he is a poison rather than a cure now. And the recognition comes in his moment of seeing this. And so the turn of fate does happen at the same moment of his recognition. It is a, uh, if you've ever had like a terrible feeling in the pit of your stomach when you realize, oh my gosh, the project is due today, I thought it was due tomorrow. Oh, <gasps> this is uh, like that times, let's say, over 10,000, over 9,000. <laughs> in any case, Oedipus goes from the luckiest man to the uh, uh, luckless man uh, to the man of least luck. All in a moment. After the second messenger, or enter yet a second messenger, uh, Jocasta is now dead. Dead by her own hand. Oedipus then broke into the room. Now we're just getting a recap of what happened here on the stage. This is a messenger talking now to the chorus. We don't see Oedipus on the stage yet. He will re-enter blind. And we do not see Jocasta for the rest of the play because, uh, well, let's hear what happened to her. Oedipus broke into the room with a sword to find the womb of double sewing. Double sewing, of course, meaning that uh, he had had children by... Uh, uh, his own children had come out of the same womb that he had come out of. His wife was his mother is what that's saying. He then found Jocasta already gone. She had hanged herself. Sort of a feminine way of dying in the ancient world. As you know, the serving women of Odysseus were also hanged. An unwarlike way to uh, die. And he found Jocasta already gone. But she was still wearing clothes. She had a robe on. And she had a golden brooch. Golden brooch, you know, sort of a pin. You have to stick it through a little bit. It's sharp. So he took those two brooches. And he stabbed them in his eyes! And he blinds himself with the brooches. And this is another charming picture of him. Look, do you see all these pictures of always bleeding eyes? That's because he actually pokes his own eyes out. Why does he poke his own eyes out? Because of his own blindness. He was blind to the truth with his eyes, and so he might as well go around blind at this point. It's very symbolic. I suppose another way to look at it is that his eyes did him no good, and so he cast them out. If, if thy hand offend thee, uh, cut it off, sort of idea. In any case, Oedipus will now cast himself out from the land. He has cursed. He knows not where he's going. He can't really see. <laughs> but what could he see even when he had eyes? Obviously not that which was right in front of him. And so what good, eye, what good did his eyes do him? And his life is now darkness, literally and in terms of direction. And he curses having the bonds on his legs broken. He curses the fact that he got to live. He curses the fact that he did not die. He curses the fact that he is conscious. And perhaps he, in this case, is supposed to sort of like, uh, uh, you know, sort of the biblical uh, Jesus, he's supposed to in some way represent humans in humanity themselves. Because what human at what point in the, or what human at no point in their life does not curse the fact of their consciousness? Because the fact that we're conscious means that we can see the future. And in the future, terrible things happen, like our own deaths. That causes us to suffer. And when we suffer, we curse the heavens. And so, even though Oedipus obviously is dealing with, uh, hopefully, far worse things than we ever will uh, deal with and uh, ever do, uh, he is in some way just like us. Because he is blind to what the future holds to him, just as we are blind to what the future holds for us. And yet, uh, we can be certain that some terrible suffering, probably caused by our own selves and our own blindness, will be in the future. That said, probably don't poke out your own eyes. Okay, so, he laments his fate. Creon approaches. And so remember the last time we talked to Creon. Creon and Oedipus was accusing Creon of arch treachery and uh, telling him that he either needed to be exiled or killed. Creon and Oedipus had then stormed off and Jocasta had, had to come back and try and settle Oedipus down, but that uh, 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 did work, but then ended up not really working. In any case, Creon could come to Vaunt 
to to brag and be like, oh, Oedipus, uh, you're in a slightly different spot than you were last time. Got any big words for me? No, no, no. Creon understands the gravity of the situation. Obviously, he's just lost a sister-in-law, and uh, his uh, brother-in-law slash nephew is obviously not going to be the same man anymore. Um, <clears throat> he's now blind, he's now wifeless, and everybody is going to know exactly what it is he's done. He is not going to be king. That said, Oedipus does request to be exiled, and does... Uh, choose to abdicate. He makes the choice. He is not forced to abdicate. And so he says, send me to the mountains of Kithiron and uh, take care of my daughters Antigone and Ismene. In fact, Antigone, if you've been reading along, does start with a conversation between Antigone and Ismene. Ismene apparently a bit cowardly. And uh, Antigone, either brave or foolhardy, you'll have to decide, decide for yourself. It depends on what you think her life is worth, I suppose. He, uh, is then given the chance to hug and say goodbye to his daughters. Uh, he said this with Antigone, do I have more? Okay, good. And then he, he says the nastiest thing. So just like in book six, when Hector was talking to Andromache, and after he had taken his helmet off and kissed his son, and said, I hope that you become greater than I am, even though I know that we're going to be defeated and killed, all of us, by the Greeks, and you're, uh, <laughs> actually your mother's probably going to be let off as a slave, which he was, um, of Neoptolemus, of all people, the son of the man who killed her former husband, Hector. Well, uh, you recall that sort of a, a negative thing for uh, Hector to say when he said, I really hope I'm dead before you get led off in a train of slaves alongside other Trojan women and children. Uh, well, here's sort of another negative thing that uh, a father is saying, uh, well, that, that a, a Greek in literature is saying to those he cares about. And when you are ripe for marriage, who will he be? The man who will risk to take such infamy. I shall cling to my children. There will actually be a man. His name, he will be one of Creon's sons, uh, the one son that's still alive to Creon. Creon will lose a son in the uh, war at Thebes uh, uh, between Eteocles and Polynices. Polynices is the elder, by the way. I looked that up, made sure to figure that out. In any case, um, his name will be Hymon, and we will see him in the next play, and he, uh, too, will have sort of a tragic fate. In any case, Oedipus then abdicates to Creon, which is what he feared all along. Recall, he was... So worried about the legitimacy of his authority. Uh, apparently for good reason, and yet he did not know exactly what reason. Recall what I said about his cognitive dissonance and his projecting of his feelings of insecurity. Um, he had thought that the threat was coming from outside, from Tiresias. <coughs> he had thought that the, the threat was coming from outside, from Creon. And yet, what was the ultimate uh, reason for his feelings of insecurity or illegitimacy as king, well, because he was supposed to be king, but uh, he, uh, in the first place, because he actually was son of Laius, and yet what he did in order to be king, become king uh, permanently delegitimated him, uh, made him illegitimate, of course, laying with his mother and killing the old father. And so sort of a question I have for you here in this, uh, and I think this is a very complicated question, is this. At the beginning of the play, Oedipus thinks that he is a hero. He has defeated the Sphinx, saved the Thebans from the Sphinx, and it has become their new king to replace the old king. He seems like a hero, and yet he's actually the person who had brought plague to Thebes. At the end of things, he seems blind. He is blind. He seems disgusting and despoiled. He has lain with his mother and killed his father, and yet he has solved the riddle of the unavenged murder of Laius. And so the curse, the uh, plague, will disappear from Thebes even though he caused that plague. My question would be this to you now. Even though, 
even though he seems so much less than he was at the beginning of the play, having accomplished what he has of finding out what he set out to find out, which was what the cause of the plague was, which was him and his own actions, and then removing himself from the city as the cause of the plague, has he actually become a hero by the end of the play, having done exactly what he set out to do? Are you a hero if what you remove from the situation is the evil that stains the situation, if the evil happens to be you? Or are you only a hero when you remove a stain from a situation or an evil from a situation if it happens to be outside of you? Which is the harder thing to do? Which requires more sacrifice? I think that is one of the most profound uh, questions you can possibly ask. And um, so, Oedipus asked for Creon not to take his children, not to take his children, and yet now he has abdicated his throne. Who's in charge? It's Creon. And Creon says, do not seek to be master in everything in the play of. That was Oedipus, students. <laughs>